Thanks for pressing play. Sharon Vaughn was still in her 20s when she found her way into the office of country music legend, the outlaw himself, Waylon Jennings. She played him her new song, My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys. And at first, Jennings didn't believe that she wrote it. But after he heard it for the third time, he picked up his phone, called his producer, and Waylon Jennings said, we got us a song to record. Heroes became a sensation. So much so that uh, Willie Nelson went on to record it too. And that's when My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys became a number one smash hit. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And uh, we are an award-winning, chart-topping, dialogue podcast. Some people even call us an oddcast because we feature real, different conversations. On this episode, we go deep into the life and lessons of a spectacular woman, um, a legendary musician, singer, producer, and of course, songwriter, Sharon Vaughn is here. And of course, she's written for Willie and for Waylon, but she's also written hits for Reba McIntyre, the Oak Ridge Boys, George Jones, the legendary Kenny Rogers himself, Randy Travis, Patty Loveless, Agnes, and Kate Ryan. And she's also worked with the legendary Dolly Parton. In 2019, Sharon was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Now, if you're a creative person, if you're someone who loves music, or if you're just somebody who finds inspiration in stories of amazing triumph, you're going to love this episode. And uh, pay special attention to Sharon's thoughts and comments on the grand dame of country music herself, Dolly Parton. She's got some amazing things to share on that. Go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode and key takeaways. We're sponsored, as always, by our good friends at Splunk, bringing data to everything. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. And my friends at Oracle NetSuite are the number one cloud business system. Visit netsuite.com slash different today to figure out how you can build the foundation for your business. That's netsuite.com slash different. Now... Hey ho, let's go. Well, Sharon, I was thinking, you know, how did I how did I want to start this conversation with you? And then the answer became obvious. So, I'd start off I'd like to start off by saying, Sharon, it took you a while to get here, but I'm glad. I'm, uh, <laughs> it took you a while to get here, but you're right on time. That is one of my favorite lyrics. Thank you. Thank you. It took you a while to get here, but you're right on time. You are masterful at these clever, fresh, new, but somehow familiar sounding phrases in your songs. Well, I appreciate that. I actually stole that from Bonnie Raitt. Did you really? I did because, and I'm unabashedly unashamed of it because I love her. And I did have a chance to meet her and have dinner with her with Paul Brady and that fabulous artist from Ireland. He's magnificent. And he's also kind of a curmudgeon and doesn't write with a lot of people, but somehow or another, he let me squeak through the door and he and I have become really good friends. But he was in Nashville and Bonnie was in Nashville and, and he said, do you want to go to dinner with Bonnie and me? And I went, Bonnie. <laughs> and so anyway, I was watching her on some sort of PBS special or something. And she did her encore and came running back to the mic. And she said, took a while to get here, but I'm right on time. And I went, ding. And I was writing with Al Anderson, big Al Anderson, who was famous for NRBQ and a lot of other songs. But we were writing the next day and I called him and I said, I have the song. And so I wrote all the lyrics out before we even got to the session. And when you write, does it always happen that way? You get lyrics first and then melody and music or is it different sometimes or is it sometimes all together or t take me, take me inside your process. Well, I'm as schizophrenic in my writing as I am in, in my lifestyle. I think that just makes you eccentric and interesting. Yeah, well, you know, I always thought that I'm the least eccentric person in, in the music business. I always think, think I'm like, you know, June Cleaver of the music business. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because Guy Clark and 
all those guys, they were so eccentric and so weird and so interesting that, you know, uh, everybody talked about them, but nobody talked about the normal me. I guess compared to Guy Clark and Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and Billy Joe Shaver and all those guys, you know, I'm like the most straight down the middle person in the world. But but the thing is, they're all, you know, I know you've heard this before, but uh, songs are like having a whole house full of kids, like thousands of them, because they're all very different. They are conceived and delivered differently. (laughs) Some of them come lyric first. Some of them come simultaneously with the I write simultaneously sometimes with a like I call it the gusher with the the music and the lyrics come together. And then uh, I write a lot uh, for tracks for European artists. They'll send me like almost every day I get a track in and it'll be da, 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 da on the top line. And I'll write the lyrics to it. Hmm. So somebody will send you music, guitar Mm -hmm. or piano or, or 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 a full full production. Yeah. A full Mm -hmm. track. Mm-hmm. And you'll write lyrics and melody. Sometimes m- lyrics and melody. Most of the time, lyrics. Lyrics. And that's tricky because you have to, you know, the syllables are already there. And it gets really tricky when some an artist is half Ukrainian and half Israeli, and they can't pronounce any English words that start with a T-H. And, of course, they're singing in English. And they're singing in English. But if you give them a TH, it's going to sound terrible. And, and I had one artist who, oh, golly, this was a challenge. She couldn't say the word love, and it was in the title. What would she say instead of love, Sharon? <laughs> You're going to love this. She would say, and I love. I'd say, what? Love. It was, it was like it's like it was like some sort of cartoonish thing, and she could not say it. And I said, "I'm not changing," but because I had already written rewritten all the ths in the song, and half of the other syllables, but she could not say. It was had, so ha- had, what ended up happening kind of a, had kind of a milk cow quality to it, you know, but. <laughs> But she was really it was sweet. number one on the cow charts. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think when they asked you to write a country song, they probably meant, probably meant something a little different, though, Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? Truthfully, I haven't written a country song in a very long time. Well, first of all, I, I just got to tell you, I love your accent and your voice. I could listen to you read Wikipedia to me. Okay, here it goes. <laughs> Thank you. That's <laughs> really nice. Day. That's really nice. I, you know, in my early days in Nashville, I did a lot of um, voiceovers in TV commercials. And so you've used your voice as a creative writing instrument, as a way to make money. Um, of course, you're a singer. Um, you've recorded, of course, your own stuff. Um, so you really, I mean, in the domain of uh, do you consider yourself a musician, a songwriter, both? As I said, it's a schizophrenic uh, lifestyle. It really is because mm. it calls, you know, every day I, I really never quite know what's going to be asked of me. <laughs> I don't sell my body on the corner. So, you know, that's a good thing. They'd ask <laughs> for change, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that's about it. You know, I do everything else. And um, and I I can honestly say to you, in my entire career, I have never one time been bored. I can see why. I mean, you just look at your resume, you look at the hits, all the songs, all the different artists that have recorded your music and or that you've collaborated on creating music with. I mean... I, like, I I go through the list and, of course, listen to the music and just think, wow, you have worked with, in one form or another, so many of my heroes and, and all of our heroes. I mean, what's it like as a young artist to have Waylon Jennings record your song and then, of course, Willie Nelson record the same song and have it have it be a monster hit all over again? I mean, 
And of course, it's one of the most iconic songs in country music, I think. I don't know. What's that like? Well, in the first place, you don't really know it's happening when it's happening. So that's it, it's it's nature's way of protecting you against complete implosion, I guess. But um, no, I I pitched my heroes have always been cowboys to Waylon Jennings myself. You did. I don't know if you know that story. I don't know the story. It's a testimonial to being just as brazen as you can be. That's the that's kind of the. That's the key to success as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Being brazen. Yeah, because I was, you know, I was a background studio singer for years. And that really was the best thing that could have happened to me because I would go into the studio with the, the Jordanaires one day or the Leah Jane singers. I was the lead singer there in that uh, quartet. And and uh, the first edition, the Nashville edition and and all these different, and the um, Holiday Sisters who sang with Elvis, all these different, again, the schizophrenia. But I also did a lot of jingles. Mm-hmm. So this uh, ad agency called me and he said, uh, I understand you do jingles. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, uh, <laughs> well, I have this uh, furniture commercial and I'd like you to sing the jingle. Great. Because I had, someone had given him a, reel-to-reel tape of mine. So anyway, I got the gig, and I'm singing, and I showed up at the guy's office, and he said, have you ever done any on-camera work? And I said, absolutely, lying like a dog. Mm. And he said, "Uh, well, we're going to film this first series of commercials, and um, he said, would you like to do it? I said, sure. So it's me on camera live and then singing live and this actually i became the ray bats girl and i was selling this god awful cheap furniture and doing the jingle and that went on for a long time i was that annoying girl who comes on after the news you know that sells either swimming pools or or cheap furniture so i yeah. was the i was the girl and i would walk down the street and people would recognize me wow you know TV is a really strange medium, as you know. It it puts you in everybody's house when they're in their pajamas, and you're right there with them every night. Right. Ad nauseum. So anyway, my producer, I had a, a record deal on ABC Dot, and uh, between sessions, my producer says, uh, I was a, certainly annoying, I'm, I'm sure. He said, go home and write me a, country, uh, a cowboy song. I said, Okay, so I went home and I write, wrote My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys in 17 minutes. It's such a great lyric, too. Like, Thank you. you just hear the name of the song and you're like, I have to hear that song. Well, it's also very true because my heroes have always. I was raised on a ranch in Florida. Yeah, there is a real authenticity to the song, Sharon. Yeah, I'll tell you about how authentic it really is. But anyway, I went dashing down to uh, the office and I played him this song. He said, my God, Sharon, you've written a standard. I went, great. I think. What is that? I had no idea. You're talking to the greenest human ever lived. How old were you at the time, Sharon? 21, maybe. You you wrote that song at 21? 21, 22. Yeah. So anyway, um, he says, okay, I'm going to play it for Bobby Bear because I'm doing a, a Lullabies, Legends, and Lies concept album. I said, great. So he played it for Bear and Bear passed on it. Hmm. So I went back that afternoon. He said, sorry. He said that Bear passed on it. I said, no problem. So I'd grab my reel-to-reel tape, and I had just recorded a song of my own as an artist called Back in the Country that was written by W. Jennings and Troy Seals. Mm. So I thought, by golly, I'm just going to go down there and play this song for Waylon because he wrote it. And Hazel Smith, a very famous journalist, she was she became later, but she was the receptionist. And I walk in the front door and I said, could I see Waylon, please? And she pushed the talk back button. I mean, the talk button on the telephone. She said, Waylon, the Ray Bats girl is here to see you. <laughs> That's went, so awesome. I said, that is so weird. So anyway, I went back and here he is in this big black Naga hide chair, you know. And you just showed up. I just showed up. And so I said, I just brought you your 
a copy of your 45 of your song that I just recorded for ABC. He played it all the way through. He said, he turned around, he said, that's a real nice here. And he said, but I didn't write it. <laughs> and I went, what? He said, that's Will Jennings. Oof. Okay. Well, I did the only honorable thing and said, you know, I've had dogs all my life, right? So I say to Waylon mm-hmm. Jennings, sit, stay. Excellent. <laughs> and I turned her. And I turned around and ran out past Hazel and into my car, grabbed my demo of Heroes, ran back past Hazel, back into his office before he could even move, and threw it across his desk. And I said, here's something I wrote just for you. So he puts it on and he plays it to to the first. And is the demo, is it you singing it on the demo he's listening to? Yes. Yeah. So he's hearing a, he's hearing a beautiful female voice. Right. Well, Mine anyway. So anyway, yeah. he plays exactly. he plays it through the first verse and stops it, and he turns around that chair and he goes, "Who wrote this song?" I said, "I did." He went, "Mm-hmm." Rolls it back and plays it again past the first chorus and the first verse. Stops it again. Turns around. He said, "I want to know who wrote this damn song." So I said, "I did." Uh-huh. So he rolls it back again, stops it again, and he turns around and he says, I want to know who wrote this, and I'm deleting the expletives. <laughs> Blankety blank, blank, blank song. And about that time, Swamp Girl made an appearance. And I said, <laughs> I said, I wrote the song. So just here, just thank you so much. Just give it back to me. And he just rolled it back, played it all the way through, rolled it back, played all the way through. He did that three times. And then he picked up the phone, didn't say a word to me, picked up the phone, called Jack Clement, who was in Beaumont, Texas at the time. Jack Clement's legendary in Nashville is one of the great producer writers in in the history of of the town. And he said, he called him Colonel. I'll never forget. He said, Colonel, I want you to get here tonight. We got us a song to record. And he did. He flew in and they recorded it that night. That night. Mm-hmm. And were you there for the whole thing? Oh, no. I, you know, it was gone from me at that point. Oh, wow. So he just disappeared with it. Well, yeah. I mean, I was out of the loop at that point, you know, because you yeah. don't. Uh, I was pretty inconsequential. Although Waylon did call my publisher and said, I want to hear every song that girl wrote. Hmm. But the reason it's authentic is because, as I say, I was raised on a ranch. and. There was this, there's, there's something about writing songs in Nashville and I can't explain it. And I'm not woo woo foo foo at all, but I was doing a jingle with Ed Bruce who wrote mama's don't, mama's don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Another legendary standard. It's one of those songs where every time you hear it, I'm, I'm never sick of it. Right. Never. Right. Just like heroes, heroes comes on and you listen to it. It's like, you just listen to it. Thank you. Well, these songs kept going. They were just kind of like stable mates, you know. And But Ed said, I want you to hear this song I wrote. And I said, we're out in the parking lot at, at Soundstage, Sound Shop Studios, because he and I had, had, he was doing a voiceover and I was doing a voiceover. And so we walked out together and he said, I want you to hear this song I wrote. And so he sings Mamas. And I said, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I want you to hear that song. I just no wrote. way. And I sang him heroes. Swear. It's the weirdest thing. It had to that's the thing about Nashville. There's something in the air sometimes. You can't even explain no, it. No, but those songs are like um twins or something. Yeah, they're stable or mates. Or siblings kinda. or so yeah, stable yeah. mates is that's probably a better way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. Now he and I had not communicated at all on this. Hmm. Not a word. And, uh, of course, I'm almost positive the first version of Heroes I heard was Willie Nelson's. Probably. Yeah. I guess it's interesting how the stars align. And now you've lived on and off in Nashville for quite a while, but you, you've left Nashville as well. Yeah, I jumped ship. The reason I've never been bored is because if I start getting that twinge that I'm going to be, Bored with myself, then I recreate myself. Hmm. 
and that's what I did. I um, I moved to New York for a year and a half, and and then I moved to Stockholm, Sweden, as one does. <laughs> a fun, fun town. I I, lo- I love Stockholm. A fun, fun place. Lived there seven years. Great people. Wow. Yeah. That was a life-altering experience. How so? Well, because I figured, you know, I was not, it was about the time that it was the, the tip of the bro country iceberg was about to be exposed. And you would think, having written the songs that I've written, that that wouldn't have been too far of a stretch for me. But authenticity is a very, very, very big thing with me. Mm-hmm. And I could not write about Daisy May cut off jeans in the back of a pickup truck and drunk <laughs> watermelons and all that stuff. So anyway, I just talk about girls, talk about talk trucks, about <laughs> all that stuff. Right. Isn't <laughs> yeah, that how that song I, goes? Yeah. And that's fine. But I just can't, I, you know, I can't put a genuine signature to something like that. I can't no. do it. No, Sharon, you're this American treasure, you know, like I think about Reba or a Bonnie Raitt or I mean, this is the air that you occupy. You're the, we don't and I don't want I don't want to hear that shit from you. I want to hear the, what you want to do because you wouldn't believe it. See, that's the thing. I don't write anything I don't believe in. No, but there's a clever is cleverness a word. There's a, yep. there's, there's something very clever about the way that you write. There's something heartfelt about the, the way that you, you know, you write about real emotions. I find it very cool how many guys cover your music because I think your music is really, uh, a lot of the songs are deeply, deeply heartfelt. At least it seems to me. I hope so. That's the intention. Yeah. Because if you know, if you don't touch somebody, it, they're not going to remember the song. And if they don't remember the song, What's the point? Hmm. So maybe this is something I've been fascinated to talk to you about. Because it, if I think about you as an artist in the biggest sense of the word, which of course you are, and you think about authenticity, and you think about the purity of the vision of an artist, songwriter, there's a creative uh, vision, creative integrity, creative, wh- whatever you want to call it, there's this creative thing you're bringing to the world. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you've had unbelievable commercial success as an artist. And so, and you've had to, in the case of jingles and so forth, you've had to write things that were meant to sell stuff. And of course, you've written songs that have sold many, many copies and, and many uh, seats to many arenas around the world by many artists. So how do you think about sort of creativity and success or commercial success. And when you're working on something, is there some tension between those things in your mind? Or how does all that play out in your head? I call myself a street writer. Hmm. And it comes down to the definition between what is a song and what is a poem. Hmm. You know, because what you do as a songwriter, a street writer, is you, it's a very difficult line to walk. Because if you're writing for strictly commercial, then it gets vapid. And if you're writing strictly for an emotional purging, then it gets selfish and self-centered. But if you, str- if you walk that straight and narrow between commercial and emotional, genuine emotion, that's the, that's the tension. It's like when you're fishing, you don't fish with a slack line. Hmm. When you're riding a horse, you don't run fast with a slack rein. You always apply that commercial pressure to yourself. And it's hard. When you're writing a song, you are trying to write a hit. Absolutely. You're trying to write a song that gets played, a song that people sing, a song that people remember. You want to write a hit. I think I do it intuitively now. Yeah. You know, after so many years, I think, I think I've learned, I think I have the chops to know what is indulgent and what's, what is going to appeal to a large number of people. But it's really funny. The more, the smaller the emotion, 
the broader the appeal. Hmm. Could you expand upon that? Yeah, you know, if you're talking, for instance, if you're right, if you're writing about a love song, for instance, I love to write one to one love songs, not talking in the third person or, mm. you know, every time you remove yourself from by a person from what you're trying to say, you lose that immediate intimacy. Mm. So that's what I try to do. So your songs are mostly first person songs, are they not? Mm hmm. So the singer is communicating their feeling, their story, as opposed to, I don't know, by way of example, Bruce Springsteen, who writes little novels, right, that, where he's the third person. Right. And, and that voyeuristic way of looking at things is fantastic. And I've done that as well. But like Y'all Come Back Saloon, that's a third person song. But what, again, what a legendary title, Y'all Come Back Saloon. <laughs> It's so you know, great. It's, like you just, even if you d hadn't heard the song, if somebody said that to you, you go, I need to hear that freaking song. And that was a big song. If I remember right for the, it was the Oak Ridge boys. Yes. It was their first uh, secular hit and it launched their career, their entire career. And they sing it every night somewhere. And they always give me credit, but um, that was my very first cut. Was it really? Yep. And Heroes was my second. It's such a great song. Thank you. And it, it brings a smile to your face. It's so funny. <laughs> yes, but you know what? It's a tragic song. I know. Isn't that funny? And that's what I try to do with my melody and lyric. I try, if I have um, a really sad, introspective lyric, I try to put it with more of an up-tempo. Or if I have, mainly it's the... the reverse if i have an up-tempo melody i want to write something really meaty so that so that the lyric gives it more weight than the jingly jangle of the happy yeah. chorus might suggest is that you're trying to draw a juxtaposition yeah i don't like ditties yeah like for instance my um um uh, the first biggest actually the biggest pop hit i've ever had it was a dance song. Yeah. And it was... What was the name of the artist again? Remind me her name. Agnes. Agnes. Yeah. And she. it was a hit in 48 countries. It was a worldwide hit. But it was a dance record. But it was very, very um, painfully emotive. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's... I, I try to do that to balance it out. So. To balance it. Mm -hmm. And so as you're doing this, there's a pure creation part, pure artistic part to it. And you're right. coming up with these wonderful turns of phrases and these incredibly catchy uh, choruses and melodies and, and so forth. But there is a consideration to, is this chorus going to sell this song, right? Mm -hmm. Will people, will people, hum the song to themselves. You want it to be a commercial success. And so are there times where you feel like you trade off, you know, because we, we always hear this argument of like creative purity versus trying to be commercial. And so where's, how do I find this line? If I'm a creative person, Sharon, to your point where you're not being self-indulgently creative, um, but you're not being overly commercial and sort of selling your soul to the, to the devil or whoever, How, where is that line for you? Well, I think one of the, to me, one of the keys is economy. Hmm. If you can be economical in a chorus, particularly, you don't weigh people down with a lot of words, but that means you have to distill it into something that's just as meaningful and doesn't, and it, you can say it in maybe one line as opposed to four mm -hmm. and then repeat it. Right. Cause it's worth repeating, right? It's worth, if it's worth repeating, if it's not worth repeating, don't repeat it. Just go home. Right. It's not a chorus. <laughs> it's not a chorus. Yeah. So, um, and I also believe in taking it melodically into a different position in the song. What do you mean by that? Well, sometimes, most of the times, I write verses, 
in a in a lower lower part of the melody, and then in in the chorus, I usually jump the inversion, right? And there's normally a crescendo that leads us into the chorus, and the, and the mu the music is actually louder and more buoyant, and then sort of comes back down in the in the verse, right? That's typical, right. yes. Yeah, that's typical. But sometimes I write the verses high, and then the chorus is lower mm. because I'm a harmony singer. And I hear the harmonies in the chorus, and I hear the fifth above the 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 note, the the home note. Yes. And then and then it puts it in a delicious, it wraps it up into a delicious package that is cohesive instead of just part of a verse. As long as you can distinguish a chorus, it really doesn't matter to me if it follows the rules. Mm-hmm. And how much do you think? It strikes me that you have a huge advantage as a songwriter in that... I'm a singer. A singer-songwriter. <laughs> no, I mean, that, but that's my advantage, is that I'm a singer. But that you, No, that was what I was getting to, right, is that you're a singer. Mm-hmm. And listening to country music, of course, I don't know if I could say all, but a lot of legendary country music has incredible uh, harmonies, even if they're very simple ones. You think of a Johnny Cash song, sometimes it's very, very simple, but almost always great harmonies, right? And the fact that you're a, not just a singer, but you're a backup singer singing those harmonies to bring an added dimension to uh, the lead track, that, that, that knowledge of harmony and melody must be a huge advantage. It really was because, you know, when I first started uh, in the studios, singing in the studios, I've always been a natural harmony singer. And, you know, you can hmm. either sing harmony or you can't. It's something almost like songwriting. You can either write a song or you can't. You know, you either have that talent, that ability, or you don't. But the interesting thing about harmonies is um, I, I grew up singing harmonies all my life. Very, very young. Precociously young. Singing harmonies with my father. But but you learn in those studios if you because I when I was I mean, it was such a gift to me, Christopher, that I was in the days of the the literal days of the Nashville sound and the in the Nashville sound officially ended in 1981. Hmm. So I would do sometimes three sessions a day, five days a week. So I was in the studio from 10 o'clock. That's a lot of singing. It's a lot of singing. And and you never knew with whom you would be recording. So you'd show up in the morning and you didn't know that you were working with so-and-so on such and such kind of a song. Well, you might, but we would have, we would have all these, uh, these people we'd never heard of. And then I'd sing with Tanya Tucker and Connie Smith and George Jones and Tammy Wynette and all the big iconic artists. But and I knew, I kind of knew what I was in for, but we never heard the songs in advance. You see, mm. we would walk in the studio. The producer would sit on a stool in the studio, play it through once, maybe twice, and this is with the whole rhythm section in in the studio. And um, I would furiously write down the lyrics because nine times out of ten they didn't even have a lyric sheet. <laughs> and and then the lyric and then the Leah Jane singers that was uh, the group I was mainly with. We would they would run it down and we'd fast make up the arrangements for what we were going to sing. So you were creating the arrangements on the spot, live, real time on the spot. So they would do it. Maybe the set, the players would play it through once or twice, and then we'd go to Red. And by golly, you had to be there on key. And know what you were singing. Yeah. So I learned how to write songs or to more to uh, analyze and appreciate songs from the bones out. Mm -hmm. You know, because I saw in their bare bones and then I saw what they could become. The other interesting thing, too, I'd love to get your insight on. And if there's other tricks of the trade, I might not be aware of. But around being a background harmony singer is... Um, a big part of what you're doing, and you'll tell me if I'm getting this right, is is really 
bringing an added dimension to the song and, and making the lead singer sound even better as a result. And so let's say you're the lead singer and I'm trying to sing harmonies to you. Oh no, let's say I'm the lead singer in this case. And I go a little flat because I'm not that good. You sort of have to go with me because if you stay on the right pitch, all of a sudden I'm going to sound bad now. Right. And so there's also this sort of element of chasing the lead singer as well as sort of if there's two or three other backup singers, you're all sort of, it's like flying in formation. And if, if the lead plane moves in a way they're not supposed to, well, then you sort of got to do that. Am I making any sense here? <laughs> you know, that's so insightful of you to know that because I, I have never met anybody who's not a professional singer that, that knew that in my hmm. life ever. And, and because I am a, a, a good harmony singer, I have been hired a lot, a lot, a lot just to sing duets with artists. Well, there are two particular artists, one sang flat, one sang sharp. So in order to do these duet harmonies, I had to sing sharp with her and flat with him. Right. And because you're right. I mean, if you are, if, and that is torture. Because you know you're off. Right. right? Because you they know. didn't have, yeah, we didn't have pro tools. We didn't have tuning. We didn't have anything like that. By God, you sang in tune. Or you were out of work. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, the, but the interesting thing about tuning is, for instance, the, the Jordanaires, the, probably the most famous background group in the, in the world. They sang with Elvis. They did all of his movies and everything. And no telling how many other sessions. Well, I, Millie Kirkham and I were the two girls when they needed girl singers. And she did all that high obligato stuff like in the ghetto and everything. Talk about a song where the backing vocal really matters. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's the Imperials and those gospel groups that, that sang on all of Elvis' stuff. But Millie was doing that high descant stuff. But anyway, um, when the Jordanaires sing, sang, they sang slightly out of tune. Not intentionally, mind you. But yeah, then course. when they <laughs> but when they stacked another part on top of that, you get the vibration that bangs into each other and it makes it sound like there's a whole room full of people instead of four. Mm -hmm. It somehow comes out in the blend and it sounds it great. It equals out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And 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 a, and a string section does exactly the same thing. Yeah, because, of course, if you have a large string section, it doesn't matter how tightly tuned all the instruments are, they're going to be off little fractions here and there. They just are. That's right. And that adds to the girth of it. Hmm. It's, it's a sonic miracle. And there's a funny little thing in my voice, you know, because you have to deal with all these um, picadillos in sonic picadillos in the studio. I hit. I have a very clear voice up in a certain range, and it will phase out an electric guitar. Hmm. It will make it completely disappear. So, if in a certain set of for on a certain set of notes, if the guitar and you are on those notes at the same time, you're going to crush the guitar. <laughs> that frequency will will uh, yeah. It's it's a very strange thing. And I also have a frequency in my voice that will sing harmony with itself. So you can <laughs> harmonize with yourself? Not intentionally, but I mean, it, on tape, <laughs> it does that. You know, and it, it's, 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 a, it's a phenomenon. The human voice is, you know, I, I just, I admire singers so much, you know. Um, I would have carried Pavarotti's boots if he would have let me. Mm -hmm. He was just because he was so disciplined and so gifted naturally. And and you, you combine those two with genius and you have Pavarotti as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Now, I, there's a million people I want to ask you about. I mean, let me just say this. <laughs> Holy shit, Sharon, Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. Jimmy Buffett recorded your music. <laughs> What? Yeah, he's recorded two of my songs now. So tell me about Jimmy Buffett and you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Jimmy and I should have known each other for decades, but I only met him very recently in London. 
Really? Even though he'd recorded your songs? Mm-hmm. Because we're both Floridians, native Floridians. But I did have the chance to have dinner with him after a concert at the Palladium. And it was great because he's just the most laid back, but he's absolutely brilliant, a brilliant entrepreneurial mind and that he's very generous. And a Jimmy Buffett concert is a great time. I don't care what anybody says. I will go see Jimmy every time. We're going to do fins to the left and fins to the right. I don't give a shit. And years ago, I saw him in San Jose where the San Jose Sharks played. And during (laughs) fins, they brought out the giant San Jose Shark mascot thing and like all of it. I love all of it. And it's the same show for what, 40 years, 35 years, whatever. I don't give a shit. I I love the whole thing. And you know what? Those parrot heads, we were in London, as I said, at the Palladium, and probably three quarters of that audience had flown to London to see his show. And he announced me from the stage because of having (laughs) written Trip Around the Sun. Well, on the intermission, it was like crushing fans coming up to me. And I didn't expect that at all, you know. I would have been taller, I guess. If I you were, you were queen of the parrot heads that that night. I was, I was. That was so delicious and so fun. And and Jimmy was just—he has as much fun as his audience does. That's that's the great thing. So that really is him. Oh, it totally is. And he, um, and he just—he on his last album, it had been fourteen years since he had cut an album. Wow. And I have a new uh, a song on his new album. Wow, way to go. Is, yeah. is that out now or is it coming yes, out? Yes, it, it just came out. Wow. Well, what's the new song called? Oceans of Time. And I wrote it with Paul Brady in Ireland. Oh, I can't wait. It's so beautiful. And Jimmy does a great job on it. And um, I could listen to Jimmy sing to me about the ocean for the rest of my life. Very absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> But you can hear the salt water in this in this song lapping up against the hull of a of a boat. Wow. Not literally, so, of course. Yeah, of course, but and so um you know, you've worked with so many giants. I mean, who else do you want to tell me about? I would be really remiss if I didn't talk about Porter Wagner. Hmm. And Dolly Parton. Hmm. I sang with I sang on her records for 7 years and um and Porter, he discovered Dolly, and they were a magnificent duo. But Porter was my friend, and he had kind of a reputation as being pretty nefarious in Nashville. <laughs> but he wasn't with me. He treated me like the Queen of Sheba, and he and I was a cute little thing back then. And uh, but he would he would keep. <laughs> He would keep people away from me. You know, he was very protective. So he was protective. Very protective. But we were in a session one time, and um, Leah Jane, you know, the girl who I was telling you about, is was the one who formed our backup group. She had perfect pitch, was like, which was a, like a curse, <laughs> because all the rest of us have relative pitch, which is means we can move with the key. But if you have relative pitch and you have a chart in front of you. You, you see an A-flat, by God, you better sing an A-flat or your head's going to explode. <laughs> Me, I don't care. I'll just sing whatever I need to sing. But anyway, we, we had this song, and it was on a Dolly session. And there was this beautiful, I heard this beautiful internal moving melody inside the chord, and I sang it. And Leah Jane said, no, 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 Sharon, no. And we're overdubbing at this point. We weren't live on the date. She said, Sharon, don't sing that. Don't sing that. I said, Leah Jane, it's beautiful. Let Please let me sing this because it's it's just gorgeous. She said, it does not go with the chord. Do not sing it. I said, one more time. Let me sing it. And listen. So we came to that same part and I did this beautiful pedal moving part. And she went, no, no, no. Porter goes, Leah Jane. Let that girl sing whatever she wants to. She could sing harmony with a rooster. (laughs) (laughs) Porter Wagner said that to you in the studio. Yeah, Yeah, he was so he was so funny. And and from that point forward, it was just you know she didn't book me too much. And so tell me about the um, 
the legendary Dolly Parton. I mean, there's there's nobody that compares to Dolly Parton. Nope, there isn't. She's she is she's. I don't think she's human. Hmm. She's just uh, she's of another species, much more enlightened than we are. That she's she's funny and smart and kind. Um, there's a song called "From Boulder to Birmingham" that Emmy Lou Harris wrote, and there's this duet, and and the Leah Jane singers were singing on it with Dolly. Dolly recorded it. And I had just gone or was going through this tremendously emotional situation where the guy I was dating had just been told that he was had to go home and get his affairs in order because he was had a blood disorder and he was going to die. Oh, and I had just been I had just been told that that day. And knowing the backstory on From Boulder to Birmingham, Emmy Lou wrote it about Graham Parsons. Who hmm. died? Mm-hmm. So I was just convulsively crying when we started working on it. And Dolly and I had this duo duet thing we had to do, and I got through it. And but it was a very long day. And Dolly came, put her arm around me, and you know she consoled me, and, and I told her all about this stuff. And but um, but she's just she's just magnificent in every way. I haven't seen her in many, many years, but she was completely unabashed with being Dolly. Hmm. You know, she was cool with being Dolly. She got it. She knows who she is. There's no way she doesn't know. She not only got it, but she, she, um, she birthed it. Yeah. You know, she is her own invention. Yes. Yeah. She hatched out of her own egg. Yeah. And she loves being the person she hatched. Yes, I think she does. Now you could go to her door at three o'clock in the morning, and she would be absolutely perfect and coiffed and with <laughs> six inch heels. I've never seen that woman with a hair out of place. Of course, they're not yeah. her hairs, but I mean, <laughs> hey man, however she gets there, who cares? I don't. She looks amazing. Whatever. I'm just so jealous. <laughs> How would you describe her in the sort of history of country music? There will never be anybody to surpass her in the female realm. That's the way I feel about uh, Merle Haggard. Mm. Merle Haggard, Dolly Parton, end of story. He's the best first-line writer in the history of the world. Merle Haggard? Yes, absolutely. You listen to his songs, and you listen to the first line of his song, and that's it, you know. You're hooked. Yeah. Like a yeah. great white. And of course, when you bring him up, I can't help but also think of Chris Christopherson. Is that, is that a connection that other people would make? I think, um, well, Chris is uh, obviously phenomenal too. But Merle had a way of, there was something painfully insightful Mm. about Merle Haggard. When you can write a line like, I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but mama tried. You know, I mean, that to me is a novelette. Boom. Right. He's communicated so much with so few words. That's right. That's that. And that expression, mama tried, became gigantic and you know the other thing about merle haggard you tell me if i'm interpreting this wrong but to me the quintessential rock and roll band of all time always has to be the rolling stones right and as much as i love the beatles and i do what makes the stones rock and roll for me is there's a dangerous element to them and i saw them on their last tour you know, before COVID and I don't know exactly how old they are, but they're not 25 far from it. And they're still kind of (laughs) dangerous. Right. If if you left Mick and Keith alone with your family, who knows what could happen. Right. No kidding. You'd have more family. Well, yeah. And so (laughs) there's this outlaw, dangerous Merle Haggard thing 
that is like, hmm, you could get drunk with him and who knows what could happen kind of an element of it. Am, am I picking up on the right things here? Absolutely you are because you, you, uh, you have that, um, it's like a controlled tsunami hmm. inside, of, uh, inside of these great artists like that. And you always feel the element of struggle to keep the lid on it. Yeah. You know, and I met Merle Haggard and he asked me to write with him and stupidly something happened and I didn't get to. And then, then we left, I left and came back to Nashville. I don't even know where we were, California, I think. But um, that's one of my life's regrets because not only was he a brilliant writer, but he was one of the best. He was the best country singer of all time, in my opinion. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Anyone else you want to share a story or two about? Bill Anderson. Bill Anderson is, he's not only in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, but he's in the Hall, uh, Songwriters Hall of Fame. And he's personally, he's a dear, dear friend. And he's 83 years old, and he still works almost every day. Hmm. He's one of the few. He has a burning discipline. He knows intuitively what to do in a song. And he just, he just, uh, but he has that joy of writing a great song too, still. Hmm. You know, he's never lost a molecule of the joy of it. That's great. Now, I also have to ask you two questions that maybe are connected. Let me start with the first one. What does it feel like when you write a number one hit song? It it depends. They are so rare and so hard to come by. And in, in Nashville, when I had number ones in Nashville, you watch them creep up the charts. And it's like, it's like someone is pulling out a tooth, one little twitch at a time, <laughs> and, and and when it's finally pulled out, you feel such enormous relief. <laughs> so, so the climb up the charts is not that fun, Sharon. No, God, no, it's awful. <laughs> it's terrible. And then, and then when it's over, you go, yay! And then it's like, what are you going to do now? Right. You know, there's like five seconds of jubilation. And it's because that <laughs> stupid tooth is gone and you're not feeling the pain anymore. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so weird. How ridiculous, isn't it? It <laughs> Human is. Human beings. And in, in uh, Sweden, it's a completely, or in, in Europe, it's a completely different thing because this song released me with Agnes was, it just popped up like mushrooms everywhere. And of mm-hmm. course it was due to a lot of work by a lot of people, no doubt, but I'm seeing it. Uh, uh, my manager would say, Hey, you're number one in Poland. Hey, you're number one in the UK. Hey, you're number one in Russia, you know, Hey, right. you're number one. And, and these places, it was so strange. I went on a holiday and I went to um, Croatia. Mm-hmm. And I went with this terrific, these friends of mine, and they were in the swimming pool. And they said, come on down. I said, I ain't about to come down under, unless it's under the cloak of darkness in the swimming pool. But anyway, <clears throat> they coerced me to come down. <laughs> and um, and we were, we were, I was in the water on the end of the pool. And um, for some reason, all these beautiful 23-year-old guys were there. And they were on holiday from the U.K., um, they were college frat mates or something mm-hmm. and they had a boom box and they're playing all these dance songs. And my crazy friend said, Hey, you know, the song released me. Hell yeah. So they put that, they, they went to it on their playlist and they're playing release me. And, and so my friend said, she wrote it. And they went, no way. And, they, and so anyway, they all dove into the pool and I felt like a very rotund Esther Williams because they were all <laughs> swimming around me and um, and they were singing the song. And it was just like I was a celebrity <laughs> because of that song in the UK. 
and I was in Croatia. How so fun. that that number one, you know, that's not like sitting there watching Billboard and and thinking, okay, please, dear God, please, you know, that one that likes me, don't let him die. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's it like when you find out you're going into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame? Now that was a doozy because I had been nominated many, many times. And I thought, well, that's it. You know, they've, uh, I've slipped through the cracks or something. And, and last year was the very first year I hadn't, when June came around that I didn't hope. Hmm. I swear it's the truth and nobody knows this, but I had given up hope and I went, I'm not going to think about it this time. And uh, I was in the studio in Stockholm with a Russian artist and a lot of Russian producers. And I got the call and uh, Mark Ford called me from the Hall of Fame. And he said, what you doing? I said, well, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm, in, I'm recording with an artist from Moscow. Really? Yeah. He said, well, I may have some good news for you. And I, yeah, I said, and about that time, I went, what? <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, yeah, I am thrilled to tell you that you are our newest member of the National Songwriters Hall of Fame. And honestly, I could only say, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Oh my God. And the people in the studio, they thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> they really did because I was going like, Oh my gosh. And yeah. um, so when I told them, they went straight to the liquor store and got a big bottle of champagne and, <laughs> and see, I couldn't tell anybody in, in, in my circles, but I had right, to tell them because they a were surprised. Right, but they were about to rush me to <laughs> get call an ambulance or whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, it was so thrilling and and after I was inducted and you know, Garth Brooks sang heroes for me. And how incredible is that? Is, is he the biggest country artist in the world yes. right now? That's what I thought. Yeah, he's the biggest male artist of all time. Yeah. Of all time. And, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and he's a friend. And I called him when I knew about it. You know, I, I could say something. I said, Garth, um, I know this is, I'm way out of line here, but I'm being inducted. And would you sing Heroes? And he went, why, monsieur? He said, if the wife is not busy, then I'll be there. And the wife is Trisha Yearwood, of course. He didn't say he didn't say the wife. He said the queen. If the, the queen, queen isn't if the queen isn't working that night, then I'll be there. And he was, and he sang that song. He put his head down, and it was just so unsung that you couldn't help but feel it quadruply. You know, it was just. It was so, as I said before, it was so distilled and so suppressed and so intimate. Mm -hmm. It was almost embarrassing to see him sing it because you could see him live it. Absolutely legendary, Sharon. Now, listen, Thank I could you. talk to you for, I could do a 12-hour miniseries with you, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Well, you know, when they uh, when they inducted me into the Hall of Fame, um, obviously you want to thank people. I never had a mentor. I was kind of a loose cannon. I've always kind of flown by the seat of my britches. But the people along the way who have been so instrumental in my life have been taxi drivers and the girls at Waffle House mm -hmm. and 
people standing in queue at at the underground and sitting next to me in a cafe and let me unbeknownst to them um, and let me overhear their stories because everybody on this planet has a story and most of them are very very eager for you to hear it to tell it and all you have to do is have enough curiosity to listen and respect in what they're saying and realize that everybody in this world is worthy of listening to and and I have been the recipient of listening to people and that's the main thing I'm grateful for well you are a great listener and you're a legendary storyteller as well it's interesting how those things often go hand in hand isn't it <laughs> I grew up you know when most fathers and mothers tell their children's stories when they bedtime stories um, this is something else I'm really grateful for because my dad was a beautiful singer. He had a voice like Vince Gill. Mm. And when I came along, my mother put the quietus on that, you know, because he was a beautiful hillbilly singing, beautiful boy. He was a boy. He was very young. But he would, when it was bedtime, I would crawl up in his arms in, when he was in bed and I would tell him stories. Hmm. So it started from a very early age that I had a listener. And the better I was at telling my stories, the more people would listen. Well, you sure have told great stories to me today and um, so many legendary stories and so many legendary songs with so many legendary artists. It's uh, your career is a stunner, Sharon. Absolutely. And um, you're so big hearted. Well, thank you, Christopher. You're you're such a stunner too. Thank you for inviting me. I still can't believe you did, but thank you. Are you kidding? Not to sound corny, but I mean, when Greg introduced us, I kind of fell in love with you. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I'm not going to be seeing you in the swimming pool, though. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean it that way, Sharon. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Uh, thank you. Only really if I'm bringing you a margarita. Oh, yeah. That's right. That's good. Right. That, Ideally, that good maybe bring, bring one to you and bring one to Jimmy. I'll be ha happy to buy you margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the second half of his show he did with a, with a uh, stuffed hamburger, on, cheeseburger on his head. He did, I just love him. I just love him. I do, him. too. I think, I think the whole shtick is... Absolutely perfect. <laughs> Sharon, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Christopher. I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you soon. I hope so. Very soon. Stay legendary, my friend. Thank you. Bye. Well, there she is, the legendary Sharon Vaughn. And I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you did, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so that you get our next episode. And if you happen to be new, we've got, I don't know, 300 and something back episodes that you can go check out. <laughs> now, America is getting busy, and to succeed in the new reality we're all grappling with, you need every advantage. That's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. You see, NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. It includes everything you need, including finance, HR, inventory, order management, and more. NetSuite allows you to manage your business with precision. Whether you're doing millions or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need today. Go to netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you can set up your free product tour of NetSuite. That's netsuite.com slash different. Also, in a challenge, legendary leaders turn to data and they turn data into doing. And that's where my friends from Splunk come in. You see, Splunk is the leader in data to everything, helping you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And my friends at Otternet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for a couple of decades now. Visit atre.net and learn how you can conquer your category. 
My friends at Spiro.ai are the leaders in proactive relationship management, blowing away CRM and turning it into a whole new thing using the power of AI to help you close business. Check out Spiro.ai. And my friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's leading distant assistants. They've been the physically distancing before that was even a thing. So if you want a physically distant assistant, say that 10 times, who helps scale you, visit Bottleneck.online today. All right, we would like to thank, of course, the legendary Sharon Vaughn herself. What an inspiration, uh, inspirational artist, an amazing person. Also want to say a special shout out to our mutual friend, Greg Canty. He's the host of the Win Happy podcast in, Aust- in Australia. <laughs> He's not in Australia. He's in Ireland. They have amazing, uh, you know, the home of amazing whiskey. And of course, Guinness and much more. Anyway, Greg, I want to thank you so much. And I met Sharon on his podcast, Win Happy. Check it out when you get a chance. Also want to shout out to my good friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. I need to remind you that today's Oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And we would love you just a little bit extra if you shared the shit out of it. We must warn you that clearly this Oddcast was created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, Technical Awesomeness, and Lockhead.com, built by Jamie J. and Sarah Knox. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to listen to Sharon Vaughn songs. Please take two podcasts and email us in the morning. If you must email us, uh, blackhole at lockhead.com. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>